There's an island off the north coast of Germany called Heligoland. In 1994, off the northwestern coast of that island, a body was discovered, with injuries that suggested foul play. Wearing smart clothes and expensive shoes, he was given the name The Gentleman. But nearly 30 years later, he's still unidentified, and his killers have got away with murder. Welcome to the mysterious case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, one of Europe's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 6, Our Man in Heligoland. We spent the second half of the last episode describing a mystery, the suicide of a man called Jan Beyer, who mysteriously disappeared from the FRV Tridens in 1994, a Dutch government research vessel. It's a long forgotten mystery really. But because this happened only 11 days before the gentleman was found, and because he was the right age, a missing man in the North Sea of that type, we just had to investigate. And of course our primary concern is trying to ascertain whether he could possibly be the gentleman of Heligoland. That would depend entirely on his height, a fact that was never mentioned in any of the reporting of the case. But the more we looked into this case, the more unsound that suicide verdict appeared to be to us. And we all came away from the last episode convinced that maybe a far darker story was being concealed beneath this suicide verdict. And almost irrespective of whether he is the gentleman of Heligoland, we just don't like leaving things like that unresolved. But this podcast series is all about the gentleman case, so we really need to work out whether he is the gentleman. And that meant really one thing. We needed to track down his daughter, Diane, ask her about her father, most specifically about the height. But we could, very respectfully, ask her about her view on the suicide verdict. And although we knew from the newspaper reporting at the time she didn't seem to agree with it, maybe the intervening 30 years had changed her view on that. So Ian reached out to her and they had an email conversation. So, I was very keen to hear what Diane had said. So Ian, obviously I'm sitting here with bated breath, be excited to find out exactly what Diane said about Jan Beyer, her father, particularly in relation to his height. So, what did she say about that? Well, I will uh, cut straight to the chase and put you out of your misery, Ken. Jan, according to his daughter, was at most 1 metre 80, 5 foot 9, 5 foot 10, not a tall guy. So Jan can't be the gentleman of Heligoland. Right. Well, that's massively important and obviously worth knowing. It still leaves me with a, a, a funny taste in my mouth, though, because clearly I've got massive doubts about this suicide thing. Did she mention anything at all about his state of mind or what her thoughts are on that? 
Absolutely, yeah. I, and as we read in the contemporary news report, she's convinced that her father was not the sort of person who would commit suicide. Absolutely convinced of it. And to be fair to Diane and her family, they, they didn't just accept the findings. They've been following it up and arguing it and trying to get the case looked at again for many, many years. Her mum, Jan's wife, died in 2013, 20 years after Jan went missing. Mm. And Diane said that her and her family took that moment to finally close their investigation, if you like, or their, their, their fighting. Mm. They finished with it. They needed to they needed to finish with it to be able to move on and live the rest of their lives. And, and I, I can see that. So she's wished us luck in our investigation, but she's not keen to reopen it and start getting involved with us trying to, 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 to go any further with it. And that's absolutely understandable. Clearly something not right about this case, but equally we've got to be cognizant of the thoughts of the, relatives as well haven't we so it's uh it's a tr- and also of course it's not the main thing we're here to do i mean we're we it's great that we've been able to establish that this man was not the gentleman another one we can cross cross off the list and therefore we should now focus all our attention on who that person should be still though i hate leaving things where i know something's not right about them and i've got a massive Me too. Of- and you too, yeah. But I do think that if Diane has closed it and doesn't really want to rake all of that up again because she's moved on from it with the rest of her family, then for us to for us to do just that is pretty self-indulgent of us because, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think it's absolutely ludicrous that this has gone down as a suicide. Mm. It was interesting, I thought, that, um, that one of the guys on the Facebook page, one of our, one of our Facebook members did put forward a theory which uh, which sort of explained it being an accident. Roger this, was, this was Roger Ward, yeah, that's yeah. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, and it was, to be fair, I've seen it in the newspaper described as an accident, only once, but it's definitely there. Uh, well, do, I mean, just, just for the record, Roger suggested that the, uh, the, the cabin, it's not built like the like a cabin on the QE2, there could be bare metal girders and all sorts of things everywhere. And if, if he's banged his head, disorientated himself, he's grabbed a, a towel and wrapped it around and staggered up to, the, up to the deck. I mean, I've seen pictures of the deck. It is quite easy to fall over and fall off the side. So I guess, you know, that's one interpretation of the results. I mean, to me, there are, I'm mentioning it because it's feasible, but it's far less feasible than, than foul play, I think. Yeah, I mean, my big worry with that theory, and it's an interesting theory, no doubt, is the blood spatter being entirely confined to the cabin, which we are told is the case. So if someone has hit themselves on the head so severely that they're completely disorientated enough to fall off a boat, and there's a load of blood in the cabin, for that blood to stop as that person exits the cabin and then blunders his way around the boat, presumably disorientated, before falling off. And for that not to leave any blood residue anywhere on the boat, apart from the cabin, just says to me, that's unlikely. I think there would be residue. Now, having said that, people went looking for it outside the cabin. So, you know, it, it, that, that may be an explanation for it. But yeah, 
it's possible. Yeah, I, I still think, as you do, I think, that the most likely scenario here is that something happened to him at the hand of someone else. And I think the suggestion that we've read that in the investigation by De Vries, that there were arguments beforehand just lends a little bit more weight to that. But, hey, I think we're going to have to respect Diane's wishes as well and, and say, well, might go back to this one day, but for certainly for now, we have to respect that and say, let's park that and move back onto the gentleman stuff. I agree, I agree. But I do think that we should thank Roger for putting an alternative theory, challenging us, if you like, because it does make us think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, there'll be plenty of other opportunities to do that going forward. So I, I definitely want anybody who's got an alternative theory to what we thought about to share that with us because it's absolutely it's not an invitation for everybody to go on the facebook page and just type out you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> don't do that but roger came up with a good idea there which well which we've included in the podcast because it is an alternative it's an accident it's not suicide hmm. that is again an alternative reason that is not what the authorities found but I agree with you. I think the fact that Dutch investigative journalist De Vries went in on this case, obviously with the full support of Diane and her family, and found evidence there'd been arguments beforehand, it all lends itself to something going on. But he didn't get very far with it, obviously, because it's still down as a suicide. I think, yeah, I think we're best parking this and letting Diane move on. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Okay, great. Hey, thanks, thanks for taking the trouble to go and find Diane. I mean, that must have been a tough conversation. Always in this case, the height will be the determining factor. We, it's been the case all the way through this investigation, and it will be going forward. There'll be people we find who are missing that we can get quite excited about, but the height will be the determinant. If we ever find someone who's gone missing, who is confirmed as being six or five, we're very, very close. But we'll probably have to go through quite a few of these before we do. There are still many rocks to lift, Ken. Absolutely. Thanks, mate. I'll uh, catch up with you again soon and really appreciate it. No problem. So now we know for certain, Jan Bayer, whatever happened to him, is not the gentleman of Heligoland. So where do we go from there? Well, the answer to that is straight back to Heligoland. Because whilst Ian had been busy talking to Jan Bayer's daughter, Joe had also been busy, very busy. Joe's value in this investigation cannot be overstated. We're very lucky to have someone like Joe relentlessly turning over rocks, happily going off on wild goose chases, spending hours and hours on research, and constantly thinking very deeply about where the next lead is gonna come from. And she does this in the background all the time. And whilst we were closing off the Jan Bayer story, Joe had been up to something with some very useful results. So I needed to speak with Joe to catch up on exactly what she'd been up to. And she'd been up to quite a lot. So firstly, congratulations on uh, solving Michael Dean, Joe. I know how much hard work you put into that, but isn't it an amazing result? Yeah, do you know, though, it's still a sad, sad thing for me that stays with me, you know. I mean, I'm glad we solved 
you know, missing person case in Canada, that's great. But I still feel sad because I just always think of a little boy on a ship going to Canada, leaving Wales behind. And I often think, if only he'd stayed in Wales, life could yeah. have been so different. But, you know, uh, I'm glad we solved it. it it's, it'll stay with me, that will, how sad it was, actually. But yeah, he had a he had a tough start to his life. He had a tough end to his life for sure, and he probably had a tough middle as well, to be honest. But yeah. hey, at, at the end of the day, the good news is that Canada can put that away and focus on other things. And um, oh, yes, actually, actually, Ken, I hope Shona does send us more um, missing people to solve that might have a European connection. Could that be well, really interesting? That would be that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? But uh, yeah. Obviously, we've put that to bed. I know you've been you've been busy in the background yeah. on other things, haven't you? So I'm, uh, I'm I'm intrigued to catch up with you in terms of what you've been up to. Well, when we first started researching, you know, the gentleman, and um, obviously we were working on Michael Dean at the time, but at the back of my mind, I started to think he he may be another missing person, and I thought we we've got to find somebody on Heligoland who was there at the time. Yeah, that would be and, uh, very useful. Yeah, well, hold on. Now, you'll be pleased with me. Um, I came across um, an article in an, an academic journal. Right. I found the name of a, a highly eminent professor of marine science who, amongst other things, she runs a lab on Heligoland. Right. Now, so I found her email and I contacted her. And what I did, Ken, I used my doctor title and, and I asked her if she knew anybody that had been working in the North Sea around the time of the, the discovery of the gentleman. Right. Now, now she, she got back to me very quickly, uh, Ken. And, you know, academics are really good like that. They do. And, and she told me that she did actually know somebody, but that he was a very reserved person right. and might not want to talk to me. So I, I didn't hold my breath and I didn't want to kind of talk to you about it at that time because I hate it when something comes to nothing. And by the way, did she know that you had an interest in the gentleman of Heligoland? Yes, uh, yes. Actually, she sent me um, an, in an interim email saying, oh, out of interest, what's it about? You know. Okay. So I explained the context of what we were trying to find out. Okay. And so that's then she said, well, she did know somebody, but he was very reserved. So she was trying to tell me not to hold my breath hmm. but he contacted me right uh, now, and i'm not going to say his name ken because he is reserved That's fair he, enough. yeah yeah he's the captain of a research vessel and a bit like tridents you know with jam right. but not uh, tridents no no not tridents and for the last 39 years 40 years he's gone into the north sea every working day from heligoland to collect water samples and to put plankton nets into the sea and so on right now, he told me wait for this that he has a coast guard friend who'd given him some information to give me and he's written that the man was very, very likely British. Union said, look, you're going to have to email him again. Yeah. And I, I almost started to cry, if you remember. And I said, I, I, I don't like pestering people. I can only pester my students at school because that's my job. <laughs> and you were about to have, I could tell, you were about to have a fatherly talk with me, ex except we are the same age. But yeah. you, were about, you were about to have a stern word with me when suddenly, 
that day he'd actually emailed back. Wow. And, and the man who emailed back, was he the Coast Guard or was he no, the original original still, man who doesn't who isn't named? Yeah, still my original man. Okay. Now, so this is now the very important thing which you are going to have to act on because I can go no further, okay? Okay. He has said that his Coast Guard friend Mm-hmm. would be very happy to talk to us himself okay. and um so he he wants he you know it's very clear um that if we want his phone number his email address we can have that he's happy to talk to us now there's no more i can do because you know that i don't like interviewing people i do so that's that's yeah fine. and um i just want to say though mm-hmm. i just i hope this does go somewhere but were it not for that professor and the wonderful man who got in touch with me, you know, and of course me finding the article. Correct. You know, we, I just have to big myself up that we, you know, if this man, now the Coast Guard, can give us that bit more, that, that would be fantastic. It would be fantastic, and you're absolutely right. Without you, without yes. these people who will never be named, who yeah. have definitely helped us find this individual we would never have found him yeah and it's the kindness of people this is what i'm always yeah you know who think yeah i'm going to help this person i'm not going to dismiss this person and that's how cases are solved so i just um putting it out there as a thank you i definitely would endorse that because it's remarkable that in a case where there's absolutely no evidence at all where it's by talking to people that you find other things and now what we've got to do between myself and ian is try and convert that contact into a bit more information and and so we'll we'll take it on from here but hey as always remarkable remarkable job joe thank you sir you are my gaffer don't forget i do anything (laughs) i do anything you tell me to do (laughs) okay right joe brilliant thanks for that fantastic and uh obviously uh when we talk to ian we'll be uh we'll be back communicating in terms of exactly what he's told us and see where that's it brilliant fantastic well done you thanks joe thanks for downloading the podcast i hope you're enjoying the journey that we're on Now, this podcast should be on most platforms by now, but please let us know if you want us to upload it to your particular favourite platform, if it's not there already. Now, a couple of shout-outs to people who have been particularly helpful. Firstly, Leonie Welberg and Rixt Kamstra. They've both been doing some serious digging in the newspaper archive and sharing those results with me and therefore I've been receiving some very interesting articles about the Jan Beyer case. I'm very grateful. And also a shout out to a lady called Audrey Bentley. Now Audrey Bentley is Joe's mum. I know she's an avid listener and I want you to know Audrey just how clever your daughter is. But you probably knew that. Now We seem to be uncovering a lot of side mysteries and stories at the moment, and that will be how it continues going forward. I know from my experience of the Fred the Head podcast that sometimes these side avenues, these tangents that we look down, one can be as fascinating as the main story, but also they may solve the main story. And that is the nature really of a real-time investigation, 
we have to check them out because this particular avenue might be the true path. So forgive us if we seem to spend time looking at these offshoots, but as you'll know, that's our style and we think it works well. And because this podcast really is the diary of the investigation, and if we have spent a lot of time on that particular avenue during the course of the last fortnight, well, it becomes part of the story. These rabbit holes really are what we spend our time doing from one podcast to the next. That's the nature of a real-time podcast investigation. Actually, it's why there are so few of them, and why I think this form, the one we undertake, is fairly unique. We don't know, any more than you do, what's going to be in the next podcast when we finish this one. And that makes it exciting for us too. Now, I mention that because at the end of this episode, there's going to be a new avenue to explore. One we found by hours and hours of research into the newspaper archives. But first, through Joe's efforts, we seem to have made contact with someone actually living in Heligoland and in quite an important position. Someone we could talk to. Someone who may be able to add a lot more detail to what we know already about the circumstances in which the victim was found. That man is called Lars Carstens. Ian had the job of taking that a little bit further. So I needed to speak to Ian. So, Ian, how are you doing? I'm great, Ken. Good. And I know, miraculously, you've managed to track down Lars and have a conversation with him in Heligoland. And uh, I'm obviously very interested to know exactly how that conversation went. It was very productive, shall I say, in terms of filling in some of the facts. More productive than we could even have hoped for, I think. Wow. Um, Lars, Lars Carsten is the chief inspector of the Waterway Police of Heligoland. Right. So when I was thinking he was the Coast Guard, that probably isn't doing his position quite enough justice. I mean, he's a top man. He, he acts on Heligoland as a low-level coroner as well. Blimey. Some fantastic experience in terms of bodies found in the sea, particularly around Heligoland. As I'm about to explain to you, he's, he's very open to sharing his experience. Well, that's useful. He would have seen a few bodies uh, in his time, I would imagine. So does he remember the case then? Yes, he does. He does remember the case, although he's never been involved in it. The body was found... 12 miles west of Heligoland. Okay, so nowhere near, well, near, but not in the immediate vicinity of Heligoland by any means. No, that's right. It was picked up floating, which is a thing we were wondering about, floating by a German border patrol. They took the body to Wilhelmshaven, bypassing entirely Heligoland. However, Lars obviously knows all of the people who were involved in that and has remained interested in that case from day one and, and, and interested enough to look at reports and discuss it with people who are actually investigating. Wow. So uh, fantastic mine of information. Whether I've asked all of the right questions straight away, I'm not sure. But, but what is very exciting is that Lars is, is, is more than happy to, uh, to assist if we need to do any follow-ups. 
Well, this is amazing because this sound, this guy sounds like someone who can perhaps furnish us with a bit more information than we've got already. So this is really, really interesting. They found the body 12 miles to the west of Heligoland. It sounds like they took it back to Wilhelmshaven and they didn't really think, and probably rightly, that this body had anything to do with Heligoland. It just happened to be found there and maybe it come from a, a different place. It wasn't really associated with Heligoland as such. Well, the interesting thing that Lars pointed out, if you can imagine the, I heard it referred to this afternoon actually, as the dual carriageway of the English Channel, then the body was found floating at a right turn on that dual carriageway. So that it, just at the point where ships would, would turn right to go into Germany or continue steaming straight on to go further up the North Sea, the body was floating just there in the shipping lane. That's why the Border Patrol, I think, found it. Very interesting. So he remembers the body being found. The body was taken to Wilhelmshaven. Is there, is there anything he can tell us about that body that we don't know already? Well, he is, as he said, he's a low-level coroner with 30 years plus experience. And his pathology knowledge, if you like, has been very, very helpful because I said it, I was surprised that it was floating because we'd heard that it, it was weighted down. What Lars explained was that over time, if the body is, is in the water, the body swells up with gas as it insides break down to the point that it will bob up to the top and float even with weight holding it down. The body will be inflated enough to be able to bear the weights that were previously holding it on the bottom. Right. And that's what happened in this case. Okay, so and this is fairly gory stuff, but eventually, because of the natural processes of decay inside the body, the gases that are produced create enough buoyancy to overcome the weights. Presumably, that will depend on what they're weighted down with, I guess. But if in this case, it sounds like the weights weren't sufficiently heavy to restrict the floating of this body once the gases has, had created this level of buoyancy. Absolutely correct. You're saying over time, what Lars said was maybe after 10 days, the body is inflated sufficiently to float. Wow. But he did give me a lot of information on the weights as well. Okay. And... You're absolutely right. If this guy had been tied to a grand piano and chucked him, <laughs> then he'd still be on the bottom. He wouldn't inflate enough to do that. But this chap had weights attached to his belt. I'm not sure if there's two weights or four weights, but, but Lars is going to find that out for us. They were attached to his belt, and he said that the weights were from shoe manufacturing machinery. Now, when I followed that up, he said that they were the weights from a shoe press, which I don't know what they look like, but we can find out. Yeah. What I did say was, surely if they're parts of machinery, there'll be things like serial numbers and all sorts of things on them. And he agreed, but he hadn't seen the pictures of the weights to know if it's there. But I was very excited because if there's something traceable that is weighing him down, then, then there's, a, there's a massive clue. I mean, where, where would shoe manufacturing weight from that's well i think you find the shoe manufacturing weights you you you're certainly a big clue now just a couple of things on that then so it sounds like 
these were attached to the belt or maybe the belt kind of straps on on his trousers it sounds like and there was either two or four of them and individually they don't sound like they're going to be incredibly heavy i mean he did say five kilo okay. before he knew how many weights were were there i don't know what it is in total maybe that they're 10 kilos holding him down okay but whatever that weight was fairly quickly it sounds like the natural gases in the decay of the body overcame those weights and this body bobbed to the surface and once it's done that it can drift with the various tides those kind of things absolutely Lars had observations on that as well but the current in the north sea he didn't think it could possibly have come from the norwegian coast or the danish coast or or the rigs further north because the current would carry that further north the sort of swirling washing machine type currents at the english channel and in the north sea that it, it could have drifted could have drifted from the english coast right across to there it's complicated physics tides currents winds we probably need to find ourselves an expert, but I know when I was looking at the charts for currents in the North Sea, it is complicated. In fact, I'll put one up in, on Facebook. Uh, there's a current that comes west to east up the channel uh, from the Atlantic Ocean, goes straight through to Heligoland. And, and of course, there are currents that come across from the kind of north to the east from England as well. So if you, think, if you also think that you've got a, effectively a, a boat a floating body with a keel yeah. that is sticking up above the waves, then your prevailing wind across the North Sea True. at that time of the year are westerlies. Yeah, they're generally west to east. You're right. You're absolutely right about Which that. Which is why he's not, wouldn't be surprised at all if it didn't get blown across from somewhere down the east coast of England. And the interesting thing about that, weighted down in that way around the belt area, when I think about someone being killed and thrown into the sea weighed down, I don't necessarily think of someone carefully putting them on belt loops. That's really intriguing, that, actually. It's probably worth pointing out here, because half of our very astute listeners will already be there. It's far more like what you would put onto your own trousers to make sure that if you change your mind after you jumped in to kill yourself, you didn't have an opportunity to clamber out. Yeah, that is true. I would imagine if, if you did sadly commit suicide without something like that, you'd change your mind a thousand times as you were struggling to survive in the North Sea, wouldn't you? Do people remember this mystery on Heligoland in the sense of, was there rumours about what had happened? No, according to Lars, no, there weren't. It wasn't really anything to do with the people on Heligoland. The body never made it to Heligoland. As, a, as the guy in charge on Heligoland, Lars has heard the reports. He's been kept in the loop, almost as a courtesy, by the people who are doing that. But no, I asked whether there were any rumours now, and he's, nobody talks about it now. Uh, and he can't remember there being any big sort of discussion or theories being put forward. It wasn't really discussed at the time on Heligoland. Interesting. So it's starting to appear that this body wasn't someone missing from Heligoland or anyone local that had fallen in the sea from the cliffs, which are very large in Heligoland. This sounds like it just, it's coincidental that he was found near Heligoland. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay, interesting. So does Lars, and I know this is purely speculation on our part and would be on his part, but does he have any thoughts as to what might have happened? I mean, clearly not official thoughts. Uh, does he have any personal thoughts as to what might have happened? He does. He's quite, well, he's got, a, he's got some very detailed theories. Wow. Lars feels that the police have been very quick to decide that it's a murder because Lars thinks this is far more likely to be a suicide. Wow. Points at the, at the weights being the sort of thing that an individual could attach to themselves yet still move around. Yeah, yeah. Points to the head injury, which I think is what made, every, made all of us think that it's definitely a murder. If you're committing suicide and you jump off a bridge... You can hit something on the way down. You can hit something that's in the water as you go in. There are all sorts of reasons why you could have that head injury when you jumped in yourself. But interestingly, he thought also, this chap has put his nice shoes on. He's got all of his nice shirt and tie and his trousers. He's dressed up as a last act to be smart when he's found. Wow, that's an interesting psychological idea, isn't it? That, that yeah. this, person, this person said, okay, I'm going to end it all, but when they find me, I'm going to look smart. So he's thinking that the injuries that everybody seems to be associating with a reason to think it's a homicide may be injuries suffered in the process of suicide. Yep, that's exactly it. Wow. That's what he thinks. He even went so far as to say if he jumped off a cliff, and the tide was out. Oh, God, yeah. Bash your head on the rocks. Yeah. The tide comes in and takes you out and, and you're away with your westerly winds. Well, if you jump off anything that's, let's say, 100 feet up above the water, there's a massive impact. If, even if you hit water, could do all kinds of damage. So he doesn't think that this man's got any connection with Heligoland at all. And he thinks he, he, he could have drifted from anywhere. From anywhere, but he personally would look across to the east coast of the UK. This is dynamite. I mean, this is gold dust, really. In terms of, <laughs> I mean, it is really good to hear somebody, obviously, with that level of experience and intellectual capacity, talking about these types of ideas because they're, they're, they're completely new. And, of course, what we didn't know before is what was weighing him down. We do now. Uh, and clearly, what was weighing him down could have been put on there by someone who killed him, but equally could have been put on by, by himself. And if it was put on by himself, Ken, it's a massive clue as to who he is, I think. Is there any particular reason why he's kind of, Lars has kept such an interest in this case then? Because it's, obviously, we've, we came across it a few months ago, but clearly this has been something he's been thinking about for m many years. Lars has got personal reasons for being, for wanting to solve this case and, and giving an, an identity back to that chap. Uh, his own grandfather never came back from the Second World War, lost in Crimea. Uh, and they still have never, ever had any news about that now. And I know, periodically, certainly he's got one current case, skeletal remains turn up on the coast in Heligoland. And Lars is, is presently working on a case which he thinks is a, a soldier killed in the Second World War. And working with some some really serious uh, forensic guys and, and DNA guys to try and find this chap's identity. Right. Because he wants, he wants to find, and I think it's motivated by the fact that his, nobody in his family knows what happened to his grandfather. Oh. 
He wants to return this guy with his identity to his family. And equally, the gentleman of the local land is in exactly the same position. So it's a mystery for him that, that he's taken a keen interest in um, mm. and continues to now that the, the German police have reactivated the uh, inquiry. Do you, do you reckon Lars would talk to us about this, actually do an interview? I already anticipated you with that question. <laughs> and, of course, I, I said, look, there's bound to be a lot of stuff that I haven't asked or where we want to drill down. You've done a pretty good job here, I have to say. I can't, there's not much, I think. You know, I mean, there is, there's, there's loads of other stuff that he's told me. You know, uh, just as an example, he went into all sorts of different environmental factors which would affect the decomposition of a body falling into the North Sea, what time of the year it went in, what the temp water temperature was, whether the guy was fat or slim when he went in, even down to what he had to eat before he went in, have an impact on how fast the body breaks down and therefore inflates, comes to the surface and starts drifting towards Heligoland. I asked if there was a maximum time that you thought he could have been in the water, and he said no more than nine months, which I think is the window that the police had and that we were working to. And did, does he have a theory on how short a time? He, he said, um, how short? Uh, I think if he's gone in, he needs to decompose enough to float, so you're looking there maybe two weeks, okay. possibly, to get to that stage, and then come across. Yeah. If it's from the coast of England could do that could be in six to eight weeks depends on the weather conditions of course but one thing that he did confirm after eight weeks the body would lose all of its hair which may be why he's got no hair Not and what, did he did he mention the eye thing at all because we've always well, had... yeah he's well yeah the eyes can go virtually immediately right either stuff on the bottom once he's come to the surface, the seagulls would have them almost within 20 minutes of him doing that. Apparently, they would also, he'd probably lose his ears and all the skin on his scalp as well. Lovely. That's what he's seen. It's, uh, I hope nobody's having a tea while they listen to this, by the way. <laughs> God. Um, so, yeah. So, there's loads of stuff that Lars has, which we can... Dig, it, dig a bit deeper into. But, dig into but... when we've got questions for it. Well, but that, it's a... It's great that you've made contact with him and, and great that he's prepared to talk so freely about it because it really is fascinating and, and probably opened up a, a new kind of line of thinking on this. So Lars thinks if he was to put money on this, he, he thinks this might be a suicide rather than a homicide. That's where he is. And to be fair, he's got me thinking that way as well now. Yeah. Particularly the weights on the belt. Yeah, that's so funny one, isn't it? No weight, they're not a way to hold anybody down other than initially. It's, it's not it's not someone weighing someone down that's want they want to be on the bottom of the seat for perpetuity. This is being weighed down to stop you changing your mind and doing something it's about your objective. Yeah. That's astonishing. He's more than happy for you to call him. I think, call I, think him. I will. Some of the points that we need to pick up with him when we do talk to him the next time, Ken, he was going to talk to the investigator and they are trying to get copies of the labels Ooh. on the shirt and the light blue shirt, dark blue trousers, uh, which have been even not shown because they said that's what makes him British. But of course, 
if they are more, because they're more Marks and Spencer's labels. Are they? We found out that his underpants, he was wearing underpants, and his underpants had a St. Michael label in, which is Marks and Spencer's too. But I've asked if they can get us pictures of the labels so we can work our magic. So they shouldn't be long. He's going to try and get us some pictures of the weight. <laughs> He's going to try and get us the autopsy report. <laughs> God. Because I think he sees us as the sort of idiots that will lift so many stones up, we'll end up solving it with him, rather than being led by protocol and budgets and that sort of thing. I know, and it's, and it's tricky for the police because they have to go through procedural things. We don't have to. We can just pick the phone up and talk to people. It's, it's, uh, but that is absolutely fascinating. Ian, thanks for that. I mean, Joe did a brilliant job of finding him uh, and absolutely, making initial yeah. contact. You've done a brilliant job in developing that kind of relationship whereby he feels that he's, he's got the confidence to talk to you in such a way. Astonishing. Thanks, Ian. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks for that synopsis. And does take us in a completely different direction, this. And that's always exciting. So that was absolutely fascinating. And I think we're about to learn a lot more about this case. Lars, who's seen a lot of dead bodies, and he's seen a lot of the information about this case, thinks it's a suicide. And those weights, and those labels, this is gold dust for an investigation like this. So I'm going to try to record an interview with Lars. I'd like to get the story in his own words. Both Ian and Joe have done a fantastic job in developing this. But I'm really interested in understanding his thought process. And he's thought about this for a long time. So that will be a very interesting conversation. Both in terms of his theory, but also in terms of what he knows that we don't know. Now, I was describing our process to someone last week. When I really think about it, essentially, we come to these investigations from two directions simultaneously. Firstly, trying to find out as much evidence as we can about the case, starting off with what's in the public domain and adding to it. Secondly, we also, at the same time, are looking through missing people who might be likely candidates to be the body. The information about clothing, shoes, and the information Lars might be able to tell us very much fits into the first category. The time we take looking for Michael Dean and Jan Bayer, they very much fit into the second category. And we want to finish this episode thinking about the second category for just a moment. So this week, we managed to prove that Jan Bayer, the 50-year-old birdwatcher from Holland, can't be the gentleman of Heligoland. And that's a good thing. Another stone picked up, thoroughly examined and put down again, which is the way we like to do things. But the problem for us is that there aren't that many people of that age disappearing in the North Sea. And we spend a great deal of time, hours and hours, scouring newspaper archives from the time for anything that might be relevant. That's how we found the Jan Beyer story. And there are quite a few terms that we use to search these databases. Missing, missing man, disappeared, vanished, drowned. And that's just a few of the many we've been searching over the last few months. And sadly, we do obviously come across quite a few missing people. 
but often the age is way off, or they're found, either dead or alive, or the height is known and it's completely wrong for this case. Sometimes, and specifically in relation to the North Sea, sadly we also see too many fishermen and trawler men lost. But we tend to put them to one side because given the clothing of the gentlemen of Heligoland, this man wasn't a professional trawler man who sadly has been lost at sea. But the mysterious thing about investigating cases like this and the same with Fred is something always turns up. We were going through another relentless newspaper trawl on Friday of last week using the word overboard as the search criteria and we spotted something new. Something that will probably become the next thing we need to dig really deeply into. The next step in the investigation. It was a tiny report. Less than 50 words. But potentially very important. So I'm going to read it to you. It's from the Aberdeen Press and Journal. But it's not about Aberdeen. And it's dated Wednesday the 20th of April 1994 roughly 12 weeks before the gentleman of Heligoland is found. And it's titled, Search Goes On. And it reads, A search was continuing yesterday for a 50-year-old male passenger, believed to have fallen overboard from a British ferry in the North Sea. The man went missing at some time during the crossing of the P&O vessel Pride of Flanders, travelling from Zeebrugge, in Belgium to Felixstowe in Suffolk, England, early yesterday morning. That's it. That's all it says. That's what we've got to work with. So a 50-year-old man, probably wearing casual clothing on a ferry, disappears crossing the channel from Belgium. That's all we know. For now. No name. No height. But he's the right age. It's at the right time and it's in the right place. But that's for next time. So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland is a copyrighted GSE Media production, written and narrated by Ian Mackay and Ken Davis, and produced by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>